Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Today, I'm so glad to have Steve Gullickson. He's the president of MGK, an insect control development company uh, and a sometimes client. Um, he's been with the organization since 1998, I think, uh, and, uh, and he runs the place. So uh, uh, it's an innovation company. Uh, and um, there, there's a lot uh, uh, we're going to talk about innovation and we're going to talk about the current business environment, building a team. Uh, and uh, and great career strategies. Steve Gullickson, welcome to The Indispensables. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, appreciate the invitation. Uh, yes, yeah, so glad to have you here. And and um, uh, so I've already learned uh, a little bit from working a little bit with you all. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a heck of a lot more to the industry uh, than most people realize. Uh, and I want, uh, I want people to understand uh, because it's so interesting how much goes on behind the scenes. Uh, but but first, maybe uh, just by way of introduction, uh, tell us your story. How did you get to where you are? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I I uh, <clears throat> I came out of school and wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, which I think is pretty common amongst a lot of folks. And I worked went to work for a company called AC Nielsen, the the media tracking people, uh, but they also had a big business around. Uh, consumer products and and providing sales data to uh, marketers like PNG, et cetera. And so I was part of the crew that was out cap- capturing those data and it got me exposure to consumer products. And so that I, my next transition was to be to go into sales of over-the-counter medicine. Uh, first worked for Bristol-Myers, then I went to work for Siba um, Geigy, which quickly became Novartis, which was a really cool business experience for me. Um, and then uh, I was living in New Jersey. My wife and I decided we wanted to raise our kids in the Midwest. So we drew a big circle around the Midwest and started looking for <laughs> opportunities and, uh, and an opportunity to join MGK, which was a family business, uh, came up. And um, my family had asked me a number of times prior to that if I'd like to join. And I'd always said no because I had older brothers and my dad and there were plenty of Gullicksons in the business. At that particular point in time, my dad was on the path to retire and my brother needed some sales help. And that was my area of expertise. And, and my wife and I wanted to live in the mid- Midwest. So I took advantage of that opportunity in 1998 and came in in a sales role um, and got along, you know, really well with my brother. In, 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 as I think about it today, at the time, I was super impatient. I wanted him out of the way and me running the business. Um, <laughs> that, that took about, uh, took about seven years to accomplish in 2006. Um, uh, I, I, I took over the presidency of the business and have been in that role since. Uh, kind of a major transition that is also important to note is we sold the business in 2012 to Sumitomo Chemical Company. So today, um, Sumitomo is a majority uh, owner of the business and uh, they asked me to stay on and that's really been a good run. I, I'm glad that I have. 
So is uh, uh, let me start now and move backwards. Is Sumitomo yeah. is majority owner, but you you guys still have a stake in the organization? We do. We have a small stake, and so it's McLaughlin Gormley King was the original name. We call it MGK today, but McLaughlin Gormley King. So McLaughlin Gormley and King, two relatives and a friend, started the business in 1902. Uh, started wow. as spice spice importers, and as part of that importation process, they got exposed to an insecticide called Perithrum. And we're still in the perithrum business today, which is a natural insecticide. It comes from a, from a flower called perithrum. Uh, actually, the insecticide is called perithrins. <clears throat> Pardon me. And so we've been in that business for well over 100 years. And, uh, um, and it became our sole focus. We got out of the spice importation business and, and focused solely on insect control and established a relationship with Sumitomo because they're uh, a big producer of synthetic chemistry that we also take to the market. So today we have a portfolio that's synthetic and natural in terms of how it's derived. Um, and so that relationship with Sumitomo was started in the early 1970s. It was formalized in 1989 with a small percentage ownership in the business. And it was further formalized in 2012 when they took a majority shareholding. So there are some McLaughlin's, some Gormley's and some Kings that still own a, a relatively small percentage of the business. And you might be asking yourself, well, why is your name Gullickson? Well, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a McLaughlin by lineage. Got it, got it, got it. So somewhere in there, there's McLaughlin. Yeah. Yep. Got it. Exactly. Uh, so so there's so much here because the uh, evolution of, of a business uh, is so interesting. And uh, 121 years ago, uh, you, the family was in the spice business. Yeah. And one thing led to another, right? And it ends up being insect control. So, so I'd love to talk about that because, um, it, you know, there's something kind of uh, magical about that, uh, how uh, one thing leads to another. Uh, yeah. and, and there's so much about entrepreneurial history uh, that could be described as one thing leads to another. Right. Um, uh, the other thing I, I, I'd love to discuss with you is what it's like uh, to, to sell your business and then still be there running it. And I'm guessing this is a strategic acquisition as opposed to like private equity or that's uh, from some cash out approach. Um, so, so that's quite interesting. And, and the other thing I'd love to uh, get your take on the generational components of the business, the, the family uh, business. And, you know, you joked, I, think in case your brother ever hears this podcast uh, about scaring him off or running him off or whatever. Uh, but, but uh, I, I suppose uh, that, that your, your father maybe, or, uh, uh, or maybe your, your grandfather or uncles or something were in the business. Um, so, so I'd love to talk about all that first. Uh, okay. Let's start in 1902 and the history of the business. At what point uh, did, did your, uh, uh, ancestors, I guess, um, uh, for lack of a better word, at what point did they realize that um, there was more promise in the insect control than in the spices? Um, so uh, let me just give you kind of a quick rundown. And, uh, and, and I think it'll answer that question. So 1902, it's, it's Alexander McLaughlin, Gormley and King. Um, King and McLaughlin are relatives, they're brother-in-laws, and Gormley's just a friend. And Gormley never participates in the business, kicks, kicks the money in. He runs pharmacies. 
Um, and if you think about 1902, the spices that they were bringing in for sure were used for food, but they also set up a company called Twin Cities Drug. And they were, they were basically creating what we call nutraceuticals today. But at the time, it was, was symptomatic relief compounds that they would put together. And I'm sure Gormley sold some of those through his pharmacy. Um, King and McLaughlin didn't really get along very well. So there you go. Here's, here's relative, you know, story 101. They don't really like each other. Um, and then my, my grandfather, George McLaughlin, Alexander's son, uh, reluctantly joins the business. His dad starts to get uh, ill, uh, goes from, gets severely ill relatively quickly. And George joins the business in his early 30s, really having no intention to be in the business. Um, fast forward through, and that was in about 1930 or so, so just coming out of the Depression. By the way, Alexander, Alexander McLaughlin paid payroll out of his own pocket in 28 and 29. And, wow. and kept the business alive. So, uh, so George takes over in uh, around 1930 or so, and um, and at this point, Kings are kind of out of the business, and Gormleys have never been in it. So that's that's really McLaughlin's. And George McLaughlin works for MGK for 50 plus years, wow. uh, in, into his early 80s, and uh, and he, in about uh, about 1960, recognized. Um, uh, there's a great picture. He recognized that everybody around him was his age. And he's like, I got a problem. I've, I, I don't have any young people. So he calls up his son-in-law, my dad, who is successfully selling uh, sports magazines based out of Chicago. My mom and dad are loving living in Chicago and says, hey, will you come to work for the company? And to give you a sense of my dad, my dad answers on the phone. Sure. And never asked my mom. <laughs> And uh, so goes home and says, we're moving to Minneapolis. And my mom's like, you crazy? We're loving what we don't, we're loving Chicago. Um, and my dad comes through the door in 1960 and recognizes we are losing money on spices and making money with insecticides. And there's your transition where the company, which is duly focused, said, you know, it, it's a, it's a new, a, a new set of eyes walks through the door and says, you know what, this isn't going very well for us. And oh, by the way, McCormick's and Lowry's have created a national distribution system and we're still selling just in the five state area. We're literally getting crushed. And so let's get out of that business. And the fun part of that story, and I and and my dad told me this story, is is my dad went to George McLaughlin and said, we got to sell this business. And and George said, okay, but I'm not telling the employees, you have to do that. I'm going, I'm going out to lunch. You tell all the people who are packing spices that their careers are over. So that's How what my dad got to do. And so we exited, we actually sold the business to a, Mich a company based in Michigan. And, uh, and from 19, basically 61, maybe 62, we're, we're solely focused on insect control from that point so, forward. So, so let me just ask, whatever happened uh, to the spice business? Yeah, so the Michigan sold? company ultimately went under. It lasted about another decade or so, but they also, they, they, they didn't make it either. They couldn't, couldn't get that national foothold. Um, so your father read the tea leaves. He did. And, yeah. and, and just to bank that lesson for a minute. So, you know, it had to be a hard thing to tell his father-in-law, oh. um, uh, gee, you know, I'm, I, I think that this part of the business is not healthy. It, it had to be, um, you know, it was a real savvy call. Maybe he just took a look at the books and, um, uh, and could see what the trajectory was, but yeah. it takes guts to, to, to have those conversations. Uh, and it takes guts to, to realize that. Um, and so that's, that, that, that's a great story. I really appreciate uh, you're going into those details. 
Uh, just out of curiosity, do you guys have, have, has somebody written a corporate history? We do have a corporate history. Yeah, we have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Cause that, that's a good one. That's a rich yeah. one. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's the kind of thing that, um, you know, if you don't, you need one. Uh, yeah. So, um, so, so then as of uh, the early sixties, uh, somebody realized, uh, well, your father realizes that, um, that it's insect control and, uh, and that's been the, the business ever since. It has been. And so in the 1960s, we really were kind of a one kind of two horse shop. We had natural perithrum and believe it or not, we were in the, in the repellent business as well. Uh, the, you know, the on skin mosquito repellent, uh, selling DEET. And so my dad, uh, spent a lot of his time and energy courting relationships with, uh, companies that had technology that we could use to build better insect control products. So Sumitomo came into the picture and, uh, uh, you know, companies like Bayer and BSF and others came into the picture. His goal was to find a relationship that someone would give us basically exclusive rights to manage the United States, ideally North America. And ultimately Sumitomo is the, the party who stepped up and said, not only will we give you the United States, we'll give you Canada as well. And, uh, and we will give you exclusive rights. Anything we develop, you guys get the rights to develop the market with that chemistry in the United States in exchange for uh, an equity position in the company. And that's the deal that we that we did in 1989, uh, which really set the company, you know, not that it wasn't firmly in place that we were in the insect control business by that point. I think it, we were, Bruce, but it it clearly defined this is absolutely what we're going to be doing. And we have a partner now in the process. And so how much of the innovation occurs in uh, Sumitomo Labs and how much of the innovation occurs in, in MGK Labs? So we do the formulating side and they do the synthesis side. So we don't do any synthesis chemistry. We don't try and develop molecules on our own, but we take chemistry that's been developed by them and by other parties. Uh, we, we're, we're pretty agnostic, no offense to Sumitomo. We try and get our hands on the best chemistry in order to, to deliver the best solution into the market. So we're, we're, when I say product development, we're formulators. We, we take disparate pieces of chemistry, combine them together and try and provide a better solution than already exists in the market today. Got it. And, and, um, and so how does that play out? So you're, if you like, how many people are uh, at MGK and are they, how many of them are in a, um, in an innovation environment? How many of them are in a production environment? How many are in a, a, a logistics environment and how many yeah. are in sales? Yeah, I'll give you rough numbers because I don't know them exactly, but uh, we're, we're heavily invested in product development so that it is a it is a group of folks that is, if you compared us to our competition, I think we're, we're, we're over-invested, comparatively over-invested in product development, but but it is our engine. Bringing new news to market play, to the market is, is our engine. And so we've got chemists and, chemical engineers and, and entomologists and biologists. Um, you know, I, I'm the, I'm the business guy. I'm, you know, most of the, I'm surrounded by scientists, which I love. And, uh, and so we're, you know, in terms of percentage of our employee group, I would say in rough numbers, Bruce, probably 30, perhaps approaching 35% are oriented towards new product development. And now that's marketing too, because our marketing department is, is responsible for bringing ideas and challenging ideas. Um, and so it's marketing, chemistry, R&D, regulatory, that, all, that whole package is what, what's, what brings us, allows us to bring products to market. And we have two really robust sales forces, and then we have a very good ops team. 
we make today, Bruce, we make about 90% of what we sell about 10%. We get from someone else or license from somebody or, but most, most of the products we bring to market, we make them is in addition to developing them. They make, we make them as well. So you have a whole outfit that's basically starts with the marketing requirements document goes through gate zero is yep. the proof of concept. And then you have a gate review system and yep. uh, some, at some point research hands off to development and, uh, and then you're bringing product to market. Yep. And, and your sales team, you say you have two different sales team is, is one business to business or uh, do you have, uh, how, how does, how does your sales operation work? Yeah, so the so um, the easiest way to explain that is to think about all the different ways that you can get insect control. So today, Bruce, you can walk into a retailer and get insect control products. You can get on the web or pick up the phone, like like the old days, and call a pest control company. Um, and uh, and so we've designed Salesforces to serve both those. In all cases, we're selling business to business. We sell through dis distributors, people who, who can do a better job on the logistics side than we can. Um, the other piece where insect control is really important is in your food protection. So we have an agricultural component as well as a, an animal protection component. And we have sales forces calling on those experts as well. So if I'm a strawberry grower in California, uh, uh, somebody from MGK is going to come visit me and talk a little bit about how I can get a better yield out of my strawberry field. If I'm a Poultry operator in Ohio, someone from MGK is going to visit me and, and talk to me about how I can keep my insect populations as minimized as possible. Um, or maybe and, even if there's an agricultural co-op in Kansas that runs grain elevators or something, uh, all of those, uh, it seems like, you know, there's a lot more insects than people out there. So, that's true. Um, and, and so, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's really, um, what you know? What would happen without insect control technology? Yeah, you know, the way I look at it is kind of just the exact opposite, Bruce. Which is, isn't it cool that you can go sit in a restaurant, you can go to a hotel room, you can be in your home, and almost always not be bothered by insects or mice or rats? And we're not in the mice or rat business, but I got to tip my hat to the professionals who who provide that those products as well. So we, we live in this amazingly sanitary environment. And most of the places in the world that you travel to are more sanitary today than they were a decade ago, and certainly more so than they were 30 to 40 years ago. And, and you got to give some of that credit to our industry, because uh, that's what we do. We, we, literally are, we literally are in the sanitation, which really means we're in the health business. We make your life and, and everybody's life more healthy by, by providing these solutions to insects. Because the, the alternative, a room full of cockroaches or a, or a tent full of mosquitoes or a bed, a bedroom full of bed bugs is not a safe place. It's just not. Yeah. And, and I mean, I certainly don't want to sleep with bed bugs and I don't right. want cockroaches right. in my kitchen and all that. Right. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'll say to people who, uh, uh, complain about DEET or whatever, you know, how'd you like to try malaria? Right. Because, uh, it's, that's the alternative. Right. Uh, and, and, and what do you guys, uh, what's your take on the whole, um, the issues of, of, of environmental contamination? And I'm sure you have a whole beat on that. Yeah, we do. So, you know, I think, um, uh, it, it, is there a product that gets 
overused? And I think the answer to that is yes. Um, and is there an opportunity to do a better job of education? And I think the answer is yes. And we, and we own a part of that. On the other hand, I disagree with the people who think that some of these insects that we control really are just kind of bothersome and not that big of a problem. Because the reality is, is, is in large enough quantities and even in small quantities, things like roaches and fire ants and <clears throat> bed bugs, they're problematic. Um, and, and there are people that argue, oh, they're not that, you know, in the, in the scheme of things, they're really not that dangerous. The reality is, is the science seems to point to, yeah, they are. Um, whether in the case of cockroaches, as an example, there's, there's ample scientific evidence, and this is going to kind of gross you out, but when they poop, that poop dries and gets aerosolized and it causes asthma in kids, particularly in, in inner cities of a lot of our urban areas. Well, that's solvable. So, so we feel pretty cool that we have a solution for that. And we think that's a, we think it's better to provide the solution than to let the problem continue to exist. Yeah. I mean, do you, so, uh, do you run across, um, objections sure. in, 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 all do. the time? Yeah. And, and the language most, mostly uses, oh, your chemistry is dangerous. And the reality is if it's, if it's misused, that's correct. When it's used correctly, it's not dangerous. Um, and, and that's the misnomer, right? You know, the, the issue is there's lots of things we can kill ourselves if used in abundance. And the, probably the, the best example is water, right? You, you drink too much water, you can kill yourself or you can drown in it, right? So, sure. uh, and, and it's just chemistry amongst all the different types of chemistries in the world. So chemistry by itself isn't dangerous unless it's misused. And, and it can be used misused. All chemistry can be misused. But when it's used correctly, the solution is far better than the problem. It, I, I, I'm super confident when I say this. Almost, I would say all the time, but certainly very close to almost all the time. When used correctly, chemistry is appropriate. Yeah. And uh, so are a lot of the scientists uh, in your R&D operation, what are they, biochemical engineers and stuff like that? So chemists, uh, some chemical engineers, uh, some entomologists. Um, and some biologists um, uh, in our group. I, I don't think we have any biochem people, but for sure, chemists and, and chemical engineers. Got it, got it. And, uh, and so it, it, what do you make of the fact that you start out in pharmaceutical sales and uh, the company um, was in the business of nutraceuticals until the early 60s? And is that just a big coincidence? It's a, it's a big coincidence, but I think it's kind of cool. Um, you know, and, and I'll be honest with you, when I was at Bristol and Novartis, you know, I left there in the nineties and, and in the nineties, we were starting to talk about, Hey, the, you know, this whole kind of nutraceutical, we got to keep an eye on it. It wasn't a particularly large threat at the time. I don't think it's taken as much share as some people thought it would by this point in time. But it, to me, it's kind of cool. Um, there's, you know, in our industry, there's a bunch of solutions that are made from a wide variety of, of naturally occurring uh, chemistries like, you know, uh, uh, whether it be wintergreen or lemongrass and things like that. And they're, they're really interesting. And we're trying to, to study those and understand them. We're not, we're not actively participating in those type of chemistries today, but we certainly want to understand them. And if they have, if they deliver good results, then we want to be in that business for sure. So we're constantly looking at stuff, Bruce, all the time. Um, and, and like most, Things as it relates to new product development, most things fail, but it's really cool when you find one that works. 
Yeah, well, you got to swing at a lot of pitches if you you're going to hit a home run. Um, so, so, uh, but before we leave that behind, um, uh, I'm always uh, um, eager to uh, get people to to talk about what they learned in their early career opportunities. I I've worked with plenty of pharmaceutical uh, companies and plenty of pharmaceutical sales forces, or usually with their managers, and um, and I I've learned a lot from them, and I think that the skill set uh, is is worth acquiring. What I guess my question is, uh, what did you learn doing that stuff that you brought forward with you into the family business? You know, I think a, a, a couple things. One is, um, you know, I had just amazing mentors when I was coming up through my career. Uh, fantastic uh, leader when I was at Bristol Myers, I was out in California at the time and uh, just um, super supportive. and. And at that point in the in the early to mid 1990s, very, you know, the sales process was very process oriented, kind of the, you know, start six step selling and consultant selling, but it was very kind of formulaic. Um, and so we spent a lot of time and energy on that. And I think as much as that was a process, it also was a way to establish a relationship. And, you know, in the early 1990s, sell, selling there was a lot of emphasis about it. it's not the relationship, it's the process, but the reality is, is it's some sort of combination of both. And, uh, and so I think I took that when I went to, went to Siba Geige and at Siba Geige, um, it was a really cool experience for me, Bruce. So I got to start a department in a company, a department that didn't exist. It was okay. called trade marketing. And so I started that for Siba Geige and my boss there also was a great friend and an unbelievable mentor. Um, and, uh, and I think I learned a lot around people management in that role. So Bristol Myers process and selling process. It, and then Novartis, Sibagaygi, Novartis, um, the people side of it. So, that, so I was able to bring both those things to MGK. The other thing I brought to MGK was, was the mentality of a large company oriented person into a really small business. When I, when I joined MGK, there were probably 45 employees. Um, and I came from organizations with thousands. And so in one respect, I had a lot of buyer's remorse. I will tell you that because like, where are all my functional experts? They don't exist, right? We all wear huge hats. <laughs> we all have really right. big jobs. Yeah. Um, and, and founder-led companies are amazing, but they're often sort of stitched together with idiosyncrasies sure. and band-aids. Right. Right. For sure. Um, and so I came with two expectations. One, the pace would be incredibly onerous because that's what I came from. And two, there'd be all this expertise. And I quickly learned that doesn't exist. And it was really cool. Probably within the first three or four months, one of one of the employees who's still, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 a mentor for me and a, and a great friend said, you know, we don't have to go at the pace from where, from which you came from. I said, really? He goes, yeah, trust me, if we if you slow down a little bit, it, it'll be a more enjoyable ride. And so I kind of, you know, I adjusted my pace a little bit. I for sure cranked up the pace at MGK, but I didn't take it to a to a Bristol or a Novartis pace. And I think that's really been helpful for the business um, and, uh, and made it more enjoyable for everybody. At least I hope so. So in, in your second role, when you were starting a department, did you have to bring people together, recruit yeah. a team? Uh, set up systems, practices, uh, and and just uh, from scratch. From scratch, and um, and I had to create credibility with the sales force, with marketing as well. So trade marketing was kind of a, uh, a intermediary between marketing and sales. And there's always been tension between marketing and sales, and I actually think that's super healthy. 
but it, it sometimes it gets to the point where marketing is like oh, sales doesn't know what they're doing and sales like oh, marketing doesn't know what they're doing so our job was to convince both sides actually we both know what we're doing and we're making progress and let's just keep let's focus on progress versus what we think is right or wrong and uh, and that was really fun um and then um and so it didn't exist and you know, in retrospect, I didn't actually hire anybody internally. And so that makes me smile because I, I brought all external people in, created a department. Um, and uh, ultimately, we got into category management, trade promotion um, and, and, and supporting all the sales materials and other things that were really it really kind of evolved into a sales ops type uh, type department. Um, it's fantastic experience. And and I wouldn't have changed except for two things. One is my brother came and said, hey, I need some help. And two, my boss at the time, uh, when I joined the company said, I'm gonna, it's three years, I'm gonna be here three more years and then you can take over as VP of sales. That was my goal. And after about two years, we sat down from our review and I said, so how are we doing? He said, we're doing great. And I said, how are you doing? He goes, yeah, like three more years. And I had learned enough about him that he was never gonna leave. Like he loved uh -oh, it. Yeah. And he then loved it and, 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 and he did a great job. And I said, so I knew that that path was going to be a lot longer. And then kind of the fun, perhaps funny side of the story is, as I mentioned to you, my family had graciously offered me opportunities at various points in time to join the business. And my mom had never, never lended her voice. And in this occasion, my mom called me and said, get on the team. And I don't think I ever told my mom no. So that that was the deciding factor that it was time, time to go. Uh, so this was not a career decision. I mean, if you're a good boy, you do what your mom said. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that makes sense. And um, so, uh, so, so the timing was good. And and I like what you, what you were saying about um, the first role about the idea of process uh, based selling. And uh, and I I think it's true in in sales discourse uh, that there's sort of a uh, and uh, a cycle of it's all about the relationship and then no, no, it's all about the process. And uh, of course, the more you have sales uh, personnel turning over, the more the company wants it to be about process and not right. relationship. Right. Um, and, and so they, they want the company to own, uh, own the process because it's hard to own a relationship. Um, where, where, where do you end up on that? I kind of have come full circle to where, um, you know, I, I've, I've begun to, to see more and more that these peculiar animals, these humans, uh, that relationship, it's pretty hard to get out from under that. Yeah. So where we are, and, and I got to give my sales team the credit for this is where, where we are is, is, is we've shifted our sales approach from selling our products to making our customers more successful. And so what we, what we've basically, uh, placed our bet on is if you grow, we, we ride your coattails. And so our conversation has shifted from here's, here are the features and benefits of our products. We don't do that at all. We talk about what, what do you need? Where, where do you have challenges? And then we intersperse our product in this, Hey, this could help you in terms of the challenges that you're facing. This will provide you with better results than you're currently experiencing. Uh, we we really really push hard for trial, so we're you know we we are confident that if we get trial, we'll get we'll get adoption for our products. And so the biggest challenge is how do you get someone to change their behavior? And think about it: if you're a professional pest control operator, or a guy servicing a, a poultry farm, or or a guy uh, treating a strawberry field, 
and you had good results last year, what are the chances you're going to change your behavior this year? It's, it's hard. And so you got to get them to try, you know, small trial, small test, you get a good result. And then, and then, and then it's the relationship. It's working on that relationship. So I think Bruce is still that some sort of, some sort of link between process and relationship because it's not all relationship. There's definitely a selling process there. Um, and, and, and the process is really about winning, know, winning, knowing when to push for the sale, um, that, that, that there's enough evidence that a sale should be, should be had at this point. So it's interesting because, uh, uh, you're, uh, you, you still have that fundamental sales instinct, right? Yep. That must uh, be a big part of how you lead the organization. Um, yep. And at the end of the day, uh, uh, that's, yeah, I mean, what, what really you're talking about value selling and, um, right. and that's in the end, I mean, even if you're not in a business relationship, my view is at least that um, if it's family, if it's friends, if it's uh, civic, if it's uh, community oriented, um, uh, I always look at relationships in terms of you know, do you approach them in terms of what you need or want, or do you approach them in terms of uh, what you bring to the table, how you can add value in every conversation and in every interaction? Um, and and so I think fundamentally, um, you know, some people don't look at relationships that way, but but when I think about human relationships, uh, what is our interdependency? What do we, what is our cooperation, our collaboration? What is the relationship about? Um, and, and I think that the, the most joy, frankly, and the most, um, and, and the most success comes when you focus on what you can do for other people. So, yep. uh, it seems like you've managed to weave together process and relationship that we've, we're, you know, we're working at it all the time, but we're, that, that's the direction we're going for sure. Okay, so so your succession planning now is all sorted out because you've had this strategic sale uh, to a strategic acquirer. You can you can thread that needle any way you want, uh, <laughs> but a lot of times uh, folks come to us because they're in this generational business and uh, they're 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 scratching their head about you know one kid doesn't want to be part of the business or you know someone does but the 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 older generation isn't quite sure that's the right person in this case probably your brother i'm just kidding i'm sure your brother's a heck of a guy uh but <laughs> but yes. uh, but 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 uh yeah tell us about that i mean what what, what have you learned about uh, uh working with family about generational uh business dynamics of uh, succession from one generation to the next yeah um I think what I've learned is, is there's, there's just no, there's no one game plan and it's, it's unique to each business. It's unique to each family in our case. So I'm, I'm the youngest of four boys and, uh, and the brother I worked with was the oldest of four boys. And there's a pretty, you know, it's about a 10 year gap in us. So, you know, we're almost arguably from different generations. So, uh, um, and the two middle guys, brothers never really participated. So, um, uh, and so I think that age gap helped from a, from a business relationship standpoint, because, you know, when we grew up, we didn't fight each other that the, you know, the middle of, you know, I, the two younger fought each other, the two older fought each other. So <laughs> there wasn't, there wasn't any sort of animosity in, involved. Um, I think the other component to it is, is, is my parents are really good about 
about managing expectations that the business is, you know, that this business isn't your future. All, all four of you guys have to go find your own way. Um, and if you choose to find that way in the business, we're not going to guarantee you that, that you're going to be successful in the business. I think, you know, I think that was really helpful from that standpoint. And so I knew when I came out of school, I wasn't joining the family business. I wanted to do something, something else. And, and honestly, Bruce, I never intended to join the business. Um, and I'm and in retrospect, I'm really glad I did. One of the things I did when I joined the business, which, you know, I'll be honest with you, I now am second guessing quite a bit. And that is, is I set a family policy that nobody's going to join the business unless they bring something of relevance, some sort of skill set uh, that they're that they're educated well enough and they have some experience. And I did that because I overheard a nephew say at a party, you know, if, if my if my primary career plan doesn't work out, I always have MGK. And I'm like, no, MGK is not going to be the backup plan. And so I put this family policy in place and it was so effective that none of the 14 nieces and nephews ever raised their hand and said, could I join except for one? We had one, one of my nephews came in as an intern, uh, did really good work. And then we had a job open up in customer service. And my team came to me and said, can we hire uh, your nephew? Cause we really like him. And I'm like, I thought, oh crap, you know, I'll have to, I'll have to compromise the family policy. <laughs> yeah, let's hire him. Cause he was an intern, right? So he does bring relevant experience. Sure. So we hired him and he was outstanding. Bruce, he was, he was just great. And, and so then I thought for my two kids and the other nieces and nephews, darn it, maybe I shouldn't have been so rigorous on the plan. So I, I, I just don't think there's a right or wrong. I know there's not a right or wrong. Um, you know, so is your nephew still in the business? What? Is your nephew still in the business? He's not. He actually decided to go to grad school in uh, Europe and he's still in Europe and he's just doing fantastic. And I do believe his experience at MGK helped him launch him into the success that he is in, in Europe today. And I think he'd agree with that as well. But, and so none you know, of the next generation will be part of the business. Well, so, I mean, at this point in time, there's nobody from the next generation in the business. That's correct. And uh, interesting. And so, and you have second thoughts about that. I do. I so, do. So, and again, okay. I don't think there's a right or wrong, Bruce. I just, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I was wrong, but I'm also super curious, had I let a few more bodies in, what would we look like today? And I'll never know the answer to that question. Understood. Yeah. And I've seen, uh, you know, diametrically opposite strategy uh, lead to, you know, a whole assortment of yeah, right. nephews Just working disasters. side by side. And no, sometimes they are like the one you overheard at the party where, you know, they're just bystanders, uh, but they right. got an office and and then you have all kind of resentments. So I think your, your, your um, instinct to avoid that it was a wise one. <laughs> um, but, but, but I, I, I wish there were more. So yes, of course, all, all styles um, uh, can play out successfully, perhaps right. even if not all styles are equally valid. And, and yes, uh, every story is unique, but uh, I mean, were there ever uh, interactions between you and your, your father say, or between you and your brother uh, or anything that, uh, that, that presents lessons uh, for others uh, who are in generational businesses? Yeah, I think, you know, I'll, I'll share two stories. Um, well, maybe three. So um, the first is, is, is 
I didn't recognize it at the time and now I actually can appreciate it. So uh, my first participation with MGK is my dad asked me to join the board. So I actually joined the board in either 96 or 97. And, and I thought nothing of it other than he just asked me to join the board. Now I, now I recognize that was, that was the first taste of he'll, he'll become interested in the business and, and that, you know, and maybe we can get him to join the business someday. So I did, you know, at the time, I didn't think there was any sort of objective there, but I think in retrospect, probably that was, Hey, let's get Steve ex- some exposure to the business. Cause we need it. We need a successor. Um, the second piece was, was when, when I was pushing my brother, um, that it, you know, I really wanted to be president of the business. I wanted to run, I wanted to run the business, the day-to-day business. Um, and I, I did, I just didn't feel like he really wanted to continue to run the day-to-day business. So we hired a coach, uh, a, a personal coach, and uh, and that was that was a really good thing to do. And and that coach really helped us by asking us lots of questions around where are you going and where are you going and 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 what what does success look like for you? So don't don't worry about titles and things like that. Like what do you want to be doing? And and the reality is is the difference between my brother and me is. So so dramatic. So I love the pursuit of business and the pursuit of a sale and the, and the driving market share. And he loved the the policy side and regulatory. And, and so we were very complimentary of each other, but it was time for us to shift roles. And so that coach helped us to get him to, to say, hey, I can be chairman and still be equally as effective in the things I like to do. And Steve can be president and be effective in the things that he wants to do. So that was a great you know, th- that that ability to have a, a, an objective set of third eye, set of eyes look at us and say, hey, you can do this and you can do this. And by the way, neither of you loses status in this scenario. Right. And and so Don't just to be clear, that. this was not a coach like rah, rah, but rather an objective third party yeah. uh, brought in to sort of do some uh, mediation, some counseling, some take a step yeah. back and uh, and help you both uh, chart your courses yeah. for the best interest of the business. Yeah, because I, you know, I, I was getting frustrated. I'm pretty sure he was getting frustrated, but we were kind of stymied, and so we just needed another voice in the process. And uh, and and that and everything's a okay. You guys are still on everything's good terms. great. Well, yeah, and so then I sell the business in 2012, and the first thing I have to do is fire my brother. So how fun oh, is that? No. And, and the best news about that is, is he knew it was coming, even though it was still hard. The, the hardest one was my mom, who, as you know, from this, my earlier story, brought me into the business. Um, and, uh, and she says to me, hey, you owe him. And I said, we, we don't owe him anything. He's been well compensated. He's been well received by the company all this point in time. And by the way, he and I both knew this was coming. Doesn't make it any easier. Doesn't make it any more fun. But um, but that was uh, but that that was a, a, a bridge we had to cross. And by the way, if he was sitting next to me now, he would say to you, it hurt and it set me up for he, he actually became a CEO of a different company and he had a blast until he chose to retire on his own accord. And I think he in fact, I know he would be sitting by here by my side saying it actually worked out great. It just was awkward at Thanksgiving. It's super maybe. awkward. Super yeah. awkward. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's a tough one. So yeah. you said there was a third story. Well, those are three stories. So my dad hiring me, then hiring a coach, and then having to fire my brothers. So those, got those it, got it, got it. Okay, uh, excellent. That's three. Yes, that's three. Nope. That's three. Yeah, that's good. Can you ask me what is the lesson? I think the lesson is is um, family will always be family. So my brother and I were a little bit short with each other before we figured out the presidency thing. We got a little short with each other when I had to let him go, and we are. Uh, you know, none of that, there's no baggage carried forward from that. So we figured out how to move, move along after that, which is, I think is great. And here you are uh, uh, running this uh, growing, monumentally successful organization. Uh, Surely that's in the best interests of, of the family as well as uh, all the other constituents of the business. Sure. And um, and and so do you have uh, if, if you were riding up an elevator and you were to tell someone the secret of your success, uh, is there a secret to your success? I'm unaware of any particular secret. I think um, I think just the process of maturing. So when I was in my early sales role, I was following the game plan. I think today that the game plan is much less clear and, and and that's a good thing. And so now it's about building the right team, putting the right people in place. Um, it's about building community. I call it community development. We, we work, Bruce, we work very hard on our community because in a perfect world, every one of our employees comes to work every day because that's where they want to be. It's not because I have this job. It's because this is where I want to be. And we're not there yet, but we're pretty darn close. And so that's that's pretty cool. And I don't, you know, at, at Bristol and Novartis, there were incredibly talented people, but there were for sure people there that were just doing a job. They didn't really want, it wasn't where they wanted to be every day. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it isn't where they would choose to be every day. That's kind of what I, what I think I'm working for today is a community of people that are like, yeah, when I get up, I just really want to come to MGK and hang out with my peers and, and move the business along. And it's a place to build community by adding value, uh, yeah. hang out with my peers and move the business along. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, yeah. Uh, that is, uh, that is excellent parting wisdom. Steve Gullickson, thank you for being a guest on the Indispensables. My pleasure. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.